Well, I'm going to tie my cell phone to a donkey. <laughs> yeah. Podcasting from an underground studio flying under the radar, this is Dan. By day, I'm a professor of cognitive neuroscience, and by night, I retreat into my subterranean lair and dig deep into the thoughts of mankind. And I'm Dave, sitting firmly atop the Great Canadian Shield in Northern Ontario. I'm a pastor by profession, and a part of that includes unmasking the messaging that comes at us each and every day. You're listening to the Not Informed Podcast. Where we're shoveling snow while swatting murder hornets. Uh, welcome everyone to episode 21. Dave, you're shoveling snow over there? Well, last week we got six inches of snow and this was just as the news cycle was rolling out more of that fear mongering about this aggressive Asian hornet, which they dubbed the murder hornet. And apparently the uh, SARS-CoV-2 was not the only thing that stood away on yeah. boat from Asia. <laughs> so. Oh man, the Asians need to stop sending us these wonderful gifts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I got this clip from the uh, Holderness Family YouTube channel where we th- they've been doing a whole bunch of great parodies during this uh, COVID lockdown, and I just couldn't resist yeah. clipping this one, so here it is. Hey, you know what? Things are looking up. We are in phase one. Gonna open up some stores. Gonna have a little fun. Gonna maybe go outside. Gonna put on some shoes. Here I go. Wait, what is that thing on the news? Oh, murderers. Yep, going back inside now. Sit this one out. Maybe stay here and hide now. Head to the back porch. Sit on the swing. Read a Facebook post. Oh, look at that thing. It's a Okay, throw away my phone now. It's all that I think about when I am alone. Because the article about murderers that I've read says it hunts down some bees and it bites <laughs> off their heads. And- <laughs> yeah, yeah, it goes on. It's pretty funny, you know. It just, I mean, just as you thought it was going to be soon going to be safe to go outside, we have news of yet another threat. This Asian murder hornet. <laughs> Yeah, fear, fear. <laughs> More fear. You know, a friend of mine, a friend of my wife's actually posted, uh, she posted, one of my greatest fears is getting a murder hornet stuck under my homemade COVID face mask while shoveling snow in May. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or so, yeah. something like that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if I ought to be more concerned about the hornets or COVID-19 or about this snowy global warming. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, just to allay the concerns of our listeners, I haven't seen any murder hornets yet. The snow has melted and no one around me has COVID as far as I know. And just for the record, Dave and I, we have been well ahead of the curve on social distancing. That's right. We've been practicing social distancing right from the inception of the Not Conform show. In fact, we are over 450 kilometers apart. So we're well out of the spit range of even the most liberal spit spread models. <laughs> yeah. Maybe next I'll tell us that COVID has mutated and that now it can be spread over the internet and we'll have to shut down too. <laughs> yeah, I think we'll just get deplatformed. <laughs> yeah, that's probably the easiest solution. In any case, let's roll while we can. Okay, so before we launch into the main topic, Dan, I have a couple of quick updates. Mm-hmm. In, in the last episode, we presented the perspectives of some epidemiologists who made the case that contrary to what we're hearing in the mainstream, the mortality rate for this pandemic is is probably very similar to that of the flu, perhaps particularly bad flu. And yep. if you're interested in following up with those epidemiologists, there's a, a new interview with Nut Witkowski, and it's on the, um, the perspectives on the pandemic, the... Um, the Journeyman Pictures channel. I'll put the the link in the show notes as I usually do. And you might remember 
uh, Nut being one of the ones that had that great quip last episode where he says, I'm not paid by the government so I can do real science. Um, yeah, real science. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I have another great quote from him. He's a good quotable guy and it's from his most recent interview. And I'll put the link in. You can, you can listen to the whole thing. But here's, listen to this. This is good. I don't know where the government finds these so-called experts that obviously do not understand the very basics of epidemiology. You <laughs> sound so exasperated. <laughs> yeah. Obviously don't know anything about epidemiology. Well, he's been under some attack, and this is why the follow-up, uh, yeah. uh, they did the follow-up interview with him because uh, people have been attacking him personally and, and all kinds of stuff. So it's worth listening to. And there's also a new interview with John uh, Yo. Your nighties uh, from again yeah. on the journeyman pictures, and he's he talks about there's a few of them actually on results from coronavirus studies, and uh, both these guys. In fact, there's a there's a new Bhattacharya update as well. I should I just try to find that and put that in the show notes. But both these guys, mm -hmm. all these guys that we used last week, uh, our last episode, I should say, uh, they continue with the same message and looking at the actual data and urging some sanity and now urging reopening of the country. Uh, and in fact, there are many more now local vocal uh, dissenters that have joined their ranks. And you might, uh, some of our listeners, and a lot of the stuff that we're going to be talking about might not be new to our listeners. We're not really about news, mm -hmm. we're about deconstructing the messaging, but but mm -hmm. uh, there's, there's, an inc there's a number of doctors now that are getting frustrated about the empty hospitals and the people of dying of non-COVID preventable causes. And you Indeed. might remember those those guys, uh, the Bakersfield doctors that got deplatformed off YouTube. And so there's a new uh, interview with them on perspectives on the pandemic in the Journeyman Pictures channel. So that's also worth watching. Uh, so a bunch yes. of bunch of great new stuff. Yeah, and and there's also the Swedish uh, epidemiologist Dr. Johan Gieseke, who was a state epidemiologist for Sweden. And he has similar views as all these other guys that we've been talking about, noting that the various interventions that are being rolled out across Europe and maybe even in the U.S. and Canada won't have a noticeable impact on the death rate that comes from this disease because it's a respiratory disease and it's very virulent. And so it's just going to spread regardless of what we do. Yeah. And of course, the death meter keeps climbing. But of course, there's also more evidence that the mortality numbers are inflated. In fact, I'll put a yeah. link. There's a great uh, expose by Project Veritas uh, breaking. We, we talked about this last episode, but there's more and more evidence that the numbers are being inflated, that uh, they're using all kinds of probable cases to include in the in the CDC numbers. And um, along with that, of course, yeah. the, the, the models are falling apart. All those predictions that we critiqued last time, especially that imperial model, they're increasingly being called into question or completely sidelined. So that's a good that's a good sign, I think. Yeah, are you talking about the Neil Ferguson model, the one that came out of Imperial College in London? Yeah, exactly. We might not have called it out in specific last episode, but that's what I was talking about, yeah. Yeah, Dave, I have to sneak in this story about Neil Ferguson, who is the now infamous epidemiologist who advanced that crazy model of viral spread that predicted that hundreds of thousands of people in the UK would die from the coronavirus. And some mm -hmm. of our listeners might remember his... Models show that a full-blown lockdown would massively reduce the number of deaths. And largely based on his work, the UK government went into full lockdown. 
Now listen to how he's distinguished himself recently. Good morning, it's Wednesday the 6th of May. One of the government's leading coronavirus scientists whose advice led to the lockdown in the UK has resigned after he breached social distancing guidelines. Professor Neil Ferguson quit following reports that a woman said to be his married lover visited his ah. home on at least two occasions. So even the crazy epidemiologists aren't following their own advice. And I gather that he had COVID and after recovering, he thought he was immune and therefore free to frolic. But of course, now there are people claiming that even if you have had COVID, you might not be immune. And so that got him into hot water. And all the reporting on this has been concerned with how he flouted the social distancing rules. But I haven't heard any specific criticisms of the fact that he was committing adultery with another man's wife. Ah. Yeah, I'm not surprised, and I'm sure that's the same morality that's behind his models, these models that have done so much harm to people around the world. And mm -hmm. in fact, there's a whole bunch of stories where these elites are just uh, um, ignoring their own rules and regulations. Yeah, that's right, because we have Trudeau, you know, after uh, it was said that we shouldn't leave the city and go to the cottage, he goes to the cottage our own premier yeah. of Ontario, he went to the cottage, right? So they're, they're all breaking their rules. Yeah, that's right. That's right. The rules are for us, the plebs, not, not for the elite, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, man, let's get going. Yeah, Dan, and before we launch in, I want to uh, reiterate again that many of our listeners, you're on top of the news cycle. You've already heard this stuff. This is not news for you. Um, and... Um, we're we're not here on the Not Conform show to break the news. We're not a hot off the press newscast. By the time we get into this stuff, it's already many people have heard it, especially on a topic like this yeah. that's very current and relevant to people. But that's not our goal. Mm -hmm. Our goal is not to break news. Our our goal in the Not Conform show is to is to focus specifically on the propaganda and to highlight the messaging that's being propagated during this pandemic. So um, as we go through and we mention these new article, news articles, um, some of them are already starting to, you know, get a little bit old, but let's focus on the messaging and the picture that's emerging as we go down the road this, of this pandemic lockdown. Yeah, we want to focus on the principles. And so in this episode, we want to draw attention to a general principle of societal change, and we can call it even a principle of global change that's playing out during this time of upheaval. And we want to give some concrete examples of this principle. And the principle that we're going to be discussing has been called the shock doctrine. And if we have time, we'll end on how this principle or doctrine is being played out or applied to shut down Christian churches. So, all right, well, let's get to it. Prepare to be shocked into reality. All right, Dan. So last episode, I promised that I would explain this thing called the shock doctrine, uh, what it is and how it's used to advance an agenda of, of social engineering and societal change. And I'd like to begin yep. by reading an excerpt from a book by Jim Rickards titled The Road to Ruin. And if you don't know Rickards, he's a uh, He's a lawyer. He's a financial analyst who writes about geopolitical issues and their impact on global financial markets. And according to his book, he's also consulted numerous times for various government agencies to help 
uh, keep the American financial system safe from financial warfare. So he's kind of an interesting guy and has a very interesting perspective. And in his book, uh, Rickards talks about the dangers that the world faces in times of crisis. And so let me read you an excerpt from the book where he spells it out quite clearly. He writes, Naomi Klein's 2007 book, The Shock Doctrine, popularized the technique elites use to advance hidden agendas. Elites formulate plans for the world order they wish to see. They wait for an exogenous shock, a natural disaster, or a financial crisis, then use fear created by the shock to advance their vision. New policy is presented to mitigate the fear. The policy is a way to advance the plan for world order. The idea is simple, yet applying shock doctrine involves decades of persistent effort. Shocks come randomly. The elite plan never goes away. Klein revealed this process from an outsider's perspective. Still, the ultimate insider, President Obama's first chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, acknowledged the shock doctrine when he said, you never want a serious crisis to go to waste. This was in reaction to the 2008 financial panic. So that's Rickards wrote to Ruin, page 89. And by the way, Dan, this is so deeply entrenched in their mindset that recently Hillary Clinton, in a, in a recent town hall with Joe Biden, referred to it as an old truism. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, listen to this clip. She's talking about the need to push through universal health care. Okay. And, and uh, this first clip kind of sets it up and the other one's got the, uh, the punchline. So let me play this first. This is a high stakes time uh, because of the pandemic, but this is also a really high stakes election and every form of health care should continue to be available, including uh, reproductive health care for every woman uh, in this country. Uh, and then it needs to be part of a much larger system that eventually and quickly, I hope, gets us to universal health care. So. So this is a high stakes time, right? Because of the pandemic and then eventually and quickly, those are the, those are the uh, uh, catchwords there. And then a little later in the interview, she says this. Uh, I, I can uh, only uh, say amen to everything you're saying, but also to, again, enlist people that this would be a terrible crisis to waste, as the old saying goes. We've there learned a lot about yeah. what our absolute uh, frailties are in our country when it comes to health justice and economic justice. So, you know, let's be resolved that we're going to solve those once you're elected president. <laughs> there justice. you go. So. Yeah, well, yeah, you get those terms, the health justice, you can, all those Marxist terms that we'll have to get into at some point. But this would be a terrible crisis to waste, as the old saying goes, right? So when, when a crisis yeah, yeah. strikes and creates fear, that's the opportunity to rapidly move ahead with your agenda. Yeah, Dave, I have some Canadian content that's related to this. Uh, there's a Canadian professor of economics at a major university in Canada. Uh, his name is Dr. Joel Blitt. And he answered a question about COVID-19 and the economy. Uh, and here's the question. What are some things that the government should do to help the economy apart from the COVID-19 supports already in place? And uh, here's the answer. Quote, as we move forward, a driving tenant should be to, quote, never waste a good crisis. And quote. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> yeah. There is, he goes on, there is an emerging understanding that recessions are needed 
so that economic resources are redeployed more effectively and so that firms trim costs and develop capabilities for the future, end quote. So uh, he doesn't include the fear angle, but he does have the never let a good crisis go to waste theme uh, in there. Yeah. And that whole business of uh, redeployed more effectively, you know, the economic resources, we're going to have to come back to that. That's another key one. Um, Yeah, we need the crises, right? We need the crises to advance something, to improve something. That's the idea. That's right. So here's a bit more from Rickards, where he explains a little bit more about how the the social engineering takes advantage of this. So this is is, uh, really good. Listen to this. The shock doctrine is a ratchet, Rickards writes. It, It turns in one direction, then locks in place. It can turn again in the same direction, but can never be reversed. Policies enacted under the shock doctrine remain long after the emergency that enabled them. The trend is persistently toward more state power, more taxation, and less liberty. Shock doctrine is an ideal tool for what philosopher Karl Popper called piecemeal engineering. So that's another uh, good concept, piecemeal engineering. And then he mm-hmm. writes a little bit later, he says, elites are aware that their views are not widely accepted in democratic societies. Elites realize their programs must be implemented in small stages over decades to avoid backlash. Shock doctrine is punctuation to otherwise anti-elite sentiment. When shocks strike, the elites move immediately to implement a new stage of their program. The critical task is to act quickly before the shock fades. The ratchet ensures that elite gains are not soon surrendered. The process goes into remission until the next shock. Thus, the global elite's true typology, a structure of floating intersecting spheres, communication courses through conferences and supercarriers who channel concepts between the spheres. And we'll have to get into that. Uh, the, the, content, mm-hmm. the content comes from public intellectuals. Uh, their their glue is like-mindedness, he writes. Their strength is patience. Their method is piecemeal social engineering. Their scalpel mm. is the shock doctrine. Their final success is ensured by the ratchet. This is all employed in obeisance to the agenda. One money, one world, one order. And uh, Rickard writes on page 90 to 91. And, and I would add to that as part of this one world order is a one world religion which is antithetical to historic Christianity. And uh, that's something that we have to be very aware of. Dave, I got to give you this uh, for this amazing quote. This is the money quote. Yeah, I think Rickard sums it up very well. I'm so glad you brought up the shock doctrine because we are living during a time in which a crisis is being used and maybe even has been manufactured to ratchet us forward along a very particular agenda. And uh, I do want to draw attention to some of the many great points that Rickard made. Uh, The first is that there, in fact, are elites, there are powerful people who, to use the words of uh, propaganda expert Edward Bernays, and I'm going to quote him here, pull the wires which control the public mind, who harness old social forces and contrive new ways to bind and guide the world, end quote. Uh, and mm-hmm. Bernays also says, quote, it remains a fact that in almost every act of our daily lives, 
we are dominated by a small number of persons. So there is an elite that is implementing a certain plan in the global geopolitical arena. Yeah, and I, I encourage listeners to listen to our earlier episodes on propaganda, which is um, unpacks how this how this works and how they think about it. Yeah, and uh, you know, people might say, "Okay, guys, that's crazy. There's no room full of guys deciding on how to manipulate the world. That's a crazy conspiracy theory." And uh, I think this brings us to the second key point. There isn't really a room with a bunch of dudes smoking cigars, controlling everything. But as Rickard says, there is, quote, a structure of floating, intersecting spheres, end quote. They don't always agree, but they generally all move in the same direction. And uh, I think that's a much more realistic perspective on what's going on. I'm reminded of a passage from the Bible where Jesus says, quote, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? And that's Matthew 7, 16. So things will become clear as we analyze the fruits or the outworkings of this unprecedented, orchestrated, and synchronized response to this, air quotes, crisis uh, by the major powers of the world. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you, Dan. And, and uh, just uh, yesterday, there was an article... Uh, with George Soros, uh, an interview with George Soros. And George Soros, as mentioned by Ricketts, one of the principal champions of this Karl Popper um, piecemeal engineering. In fact, his uh, his Open Society Foundations is named in honor of Popper's best-known book, The Open Society and Its Enemies. And listen to this. This is, uh, yeah. this is Soros. He says, this is the crisis of my lifetime. Even before the pandemic hit, I realized that we were in a revolutionary moment where what would be impossible or even inconceivable in normal times had become not only possible, but probably absolutely necessary. And then came COVID-19, which has totally disrupted people's lives and required very different behavior. It's an unprecedented event that probably has never occurred in this combination and it really endangers the survival of our civilization. Of course, these guys see themselves as saviors and their social engineering yeah. is being critical for the survival of, of society, right? So That was George yeah. Soros, Dave? That's George Soros. Yeah, there's a bunch of good wow. quotes uh, in that interview. And I, I just grabbed the first one because I this wasn't, I hadn't planned to bring this in. But, but uh, you know, it's, it's unprecedented. And uh, maybe before we... Uh, Go on to our next segment. Here's a clip from Trudeau where somebody oh, yeah. um, picked up on this, the, the fact that they like to, to highlight the crisis and how we have to be urgent. And it has maybe uh, from March to, to through April and the May, just uh, all these, if you watch the video, it's got the dates counting up, right? And, uh, <laughs> and uh, here, I'll just play it. Good morning, everyone. Unprecedented, 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 unprecedented. This is, of course, an unprecedented situation in a situation that is unprecedented, 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 unprecedented numbers in an unprecedented crisis. Unprecedented, 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 unprecedented crisis. Thank you. Yeah, well, Dave, you know, one might think this is an unprecedented crisis, but really all the principles that are at play have occurred at some point before. So, in fact, it's quite predictable if you understand 
the principles of mass control and elite manipulation. And, and to understand those, we would look at some of the fruits that are playing out. And so let's do that. Let's go and look at some of the fruits. This is the Knock and Form Show. Make sure you tell everyone you know. All right, so in the show notes outline, we'll title this section something like the shock doctrine applied or or maybe Rickard's ratchet clicks forward or something like that. So um, yeah, that's how we, yep. uh, so when you're, if you're following along and you want to find out where we are, that's where let's call it the shock doctrine applied. Now, as we said, the elites will use this crisis to advance their agenda. And this means that they will try to grab more power. And we've seen this before during nine 11 and the war on terror, but we're seeing it play out now again, especially here in Canada. So right now, the Liberal Party, led by our Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, has a minority government. This means that they can't just pass any legislation they want. They have to get one or more of the opposition parties on board and garner a majority vote in Parliament. So Trudeau's power is somewhat limited right now. But wait, it's COVID time. It's time to grab unlimited power, which Trudeau tried to do late in March. Yeah, Dan, I've got a great clip that summarizes this quite nicely. Global News has been briefed on some of the contents of the legislation that the Trudeau minority government will put before the House tomorrow. One section of the legislation would give Finance Minister Bill Morneau special powers to raise taxes, lower taxes, and change existing tax law all without Parliament's approval, either before the fact or after the fact. Not only that, Morneau would have this extraordinary power until December 2021. Now, we asked the finance minister's office to comment on this legislation, and what we heard from Bill Morneau's uh, spokespeople was essentially that they're not going to comment until the legislation is actually tabled in the House on on Tuesday. Uh, And they say they're working with all parties to see this legislation through. But this is a minority government that is essentially asking for a blank check to borrow, tax, and spend Woo! for the next 18 months <laughs> yeah. without parliamentary approval. I can tell you that the opposition parties, all of them, were surprised when they saw the text of this legislation today. Surprise is an understatement, perhaps, and they're all very anxious about giving Morneau these new powers. And so what do they do? They are going to strategize overnight about this. Uh, They do have more combined votes in the government. Do they amend the legislation? Do they defeat it? That's what they'll have to discover. But Donna, just to sum up how historic this is, even in the First World War, in the Second World War, no finance minister asked or got these kind of powers because, of course, Parliament was able to sit all through those crises, those national emergencies, and vote on legislation. And I'm sure the Liberals tomorrow will be saying they need some of these big big powers because for the first time in our history, we may have to limit Parliament's ability to meet because of this public health crisis. Yeah, and Dave, here is one of the members of Parliament from Ontario. They have presented us with a bill that they want to ram through the House of Commons tomorrow, which would give the government the ability to spend unlimited amounts of money, raise unlimited amount of taxes, and add unlimited amounts of debt over the next roughly two years without any approval from the Parliament. What's more, this bill would allow the Finance Minister to give as much money as he wants 
to any company or individual he chooses. Again, wow. without parliamentary approval. Let's step back for a second. For the last 800 years, our parliamentary system, which began in the fields of Runnymede in, the, in our British tradition, has required that the government cannot spend, tax, or borrow what Parliament has not approved. In other words, you cannot take what the people have not authorized. And that is why Parliament always has to approve spending. In this time of crisis, we assumed the government would act in good faith, would work with the parliamentary tools we've had all along. But with this bill, it is clear that they are not doing that, that they are using this crisis to carry out a power grab. So they want to have all the power. This is communist China level stuff here. Yeah, it, it, it absolutely is, Dan. And um, in fact, uh, this is the same prime minister who, while he was running for office, had this to say about China. He was asked which country he most admired and referred to China. There's a level of, of uh, admiration I actually have for China um, because their you know, basic dictatorship is allowing them uh, to actually turn their economy around on a dime and say we need to go green as fast as we need to start you know, investing in solar. I mean, there is a flexibility that I know Stephen Harper must dream about of having a dictatorship. <laughs> Yeah, he tries to turn it around, blame it on, blame it on Harper. But yeah, <laughs> you, know, you know, I think he might have figured he put his foot in his mouth. But this is where the truth wants to come yeah. out, right? And and we're now seeing it in action. <laughs> he, he, we're we now are. seeing it in action. By their fruits, you shall know them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, our, our opposition parties managed to avoid an eighteen-month uh, power grab, but they still gave him enough uh, enough leeway to certainly hang the country. Um, he's mm -hmm. quite capable of running the country in a bankruptcy and, you know, by September. So, so anyways, you know, Dan, I wish, I wish this was the only example of Trudeau and the liberal party attempting to grab power amidst this crisis. But unfortunately, that's not the case. Unfortunately, as many of you know, back in uh, just, uh, you know, in April, mid April, uh, there was that shooting in Nova Scotia where gunmen killed multiple people and set fires at 16 locations in Nova Scotia, killing 22 mm -hmm. people and injuring three others um, before he was shot and killed by RCMP. And so, of course, of course, Trudeau and the Liberals had nothing better to do than to ram through legislation to ban more guns in Canada. And and yep. here's a clip from Global News, okay, on this, on this, uh, what, this supposed assault-style weapons ban in Canada, even though we don't really have this category of assault rifles, but here, here it is. Good evening and thank you for joining us. We begin with sweeping new restrictions on assault-style weapons in this country. The federal government has now made it illegal to buy, sell, or use roughly 1,500 different types of guns. It comes after last week's massacre in Nova Scotia, one of the worst mass killings in Canadian history. 30 years from now, an entire generation of Canadians will remember exactly where they were on Sunday, April 18th, 2020. They will remember how their sense of safety was shaken, how their outlook on the world was forever changed. They will remember the day that they lost some of their innocence. This chapter in our history cannot be rewritten. 
but what happens next is up to us. We can stick to thoughts and prayers alone, or we can unite as a country and put an end to this. We can decide together that enough is enough. <laughs> enough is enough. On the list of banned weapons, guns used in past mass shootings, including the AR-15. For people who already own these now prohibited weapons, the government says there's a two-year amnesty period, and it's working on a program to buy back the guns. Yeah, so we'll see how this actually uh, shakes out. But yeah, you have the enough is enough. Isn't that Trudeau is chastising us to stay home? Enough is enough. Last episode, yeah. do we have that clip? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we do. Dave, we should talk like Justin Trudeau. Yeah, yeah. And tell people how important it is that they listen to the Not Conform show. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's not enough just... is enough again. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And then you shouldn't yeah. stick to thoughts and prayers alone. What a, what a condescending backslap to Christians, you know? Uh, it, it's, yeah, exactly. It's frustrating. Prayers don't matter. <laughs> Legislation does. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, this enough is enough thing. Uh, we've heard that in Trudeau's COVID lockdown speech in the last episode. Mm -hmm. And uh, in fact, so that we don't forget Trudeau's dictates, I have a clip with Trudeau's key orders set to music. Listen to this, Dave. Enough is enough. Go home and stay home. You're putting others at risk. Enough is enough. Go home and stay home. And we're going to make sure this happens by enforcing the rules if that's needed. Nothing that could help is off the table. Ooh. Normality as it was before uh, will not come back full on until we get a vaccine for this. And as you say, that uh, could be a very long way off. Enough is enough. Go home stay home. You're putting others at risk. Enough is enough. Go home and stay home. And we're going to make sure this happens. But what happens next is up to us. We can decide together that enough is enough. Yeah, man. I think enough is enough. <laughs> enough is enough. Yeah. Yeah. Is that, is that something you put together, that clip? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> I thought I'd set it to music because, you know, it's coming from our leader and we want to make sure it, it kind of gets drilled into our mind so that we're properly yeah. programmed going forward so that we can engage in full obedience to the governing authorities. That's right. Maybe we should put it as the, uh, uh, you know, the end of end of show message. <laughs> <laughs> the end of so end of show messaging <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah i have another clip uh before we get too far off topic here uh of the uh this gun issue and it illustrates how they're simply taking advantage of the crisis and this is uh bill blair and he's being interviewed by the cbc news so listen to this frankly we have the opportunity to, to today fulfill our promise to prohibit weapons that have no place in our society. As the Prime Minister has made clear, and I think it's patently obvious to the vast majority of Canadians, these are weapons that were not designed for the only legal purposes that our firearms can be used in Canada for hunting and sport purposes. They were designed to kill people. They're military weapons designed for soldiers to kill other soldiers. They have no recreational purpose in our country. They have no legal purpose, and, and therefore we've now prohibited them. And, and the, the, by removing those weapons from, from our, our, our society, I think we're going to make our country safer. 
Yeah. So notice he says at the beginning, we had the opportunity, right? And they acted, ah. uh, as we heard in the other clip, you know, this was barely two weeks in after this. We don't even know the details. They've they've been very careful not to give us the details of this shooting in the situation. They've said, oh, it's not now is not the right time to be asking those questions. Meanwhile, they move rapidly forward to... Uh, to bring in this legislation or to enact this. And there's a lot of more qualified people that can debunk the claims that he just made. You know, he, he brings up the, the herring of hunting and sport purposes. And so does Trudeau. Yeah. And this idea that there's no recreational purpose. That's false. There's no legal. That's false. Of course, there's a legal recreational purpose. It's called sport shooting. It's called going to the gun range. It's called target, you know, the target shooting, the, the uh, competitions, all mm -hmm. that stuff. And, and, and there has been police chiefs that have gone on record to debunk this idea that it's going to make our country safer. And the important yeah. thing here, the important thing here is that this was not done by a vote of parliament, but by a decision made by Trudeau's cabinet, what, what they call an order in council. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there was no debate on this anywhere in our political system. And this was just an order in council. They put this ban of these, these, uh, 1500 firearms. And as I understand, they were able to do this because the, there was an opening created by another piece of legislation from years ago that created this concept of banned firearms, a list of banned firearms, and the government is allowed to add to this list. So they just decide, Oh, now is the perfect opportunity to add another 1500 firearms to this list. And if I'm wrong about that, write in and we'll correct it in the next episode. But what's interesting is um, a listener sent me a link uh, last week to a, a 2018 governor sur uh, government survey on this topic uh, of gun gun legislation. And the findings in that survey were that people wouldn't, first of all, not support this kind of approach and that it wouldn't increase safety Okay, that's all in mm -hmm. the in the summary, and I'll put it in the show notes. It's a PDF, and the Trudeau government went and did it and did it anyway, right? Because they couldn't yeah. let a good crisis go to waste. And Dave, Dave, uh, this is a good example of the ratchet, right? Because mm -hmm. there's a prior instance where they already put a law in place that advanced things a little bit, and now they're advancing it even more, right? Yeah, so that's exactly, exactly what Rickards is talking about. Exactly. And especially, yeah, exactly. They've pre-planned this. Yes, they have. And I think that's very important to understand that, uh, that this heightened level of control and the attempted power grabs have been, as you say, Dave, pre-planned. Yeah. And especially with these, this anti-gun legislation, these things are ready to go. They just need to be dusted off and a few blanks filled in. And, and by the way, this is also true for those that are trying to bring in gun anti-gun legislation in the U.S. Okay. And we don't have to, mm -hmm. time to get into it, uh, but our American friends need to be on the alert because this is precisely what the Democrats want to do in your country. Uh, they have these things yeah. and they're using these, 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 uh, uh, crises to rapidly advance through an agenda. So just be on the watch out because Canada is supposedly the model for how gun control should be done. And Dave, yeah, in uh, relation to COVID-19, in late 2019, there was in fact an exercise in the U.S. that simulated a coronavirus pandemic. It was called Event mm -hmm. 201. And guess who was heavily involved? Yeah, this is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, right? Yeah, we're going to see yeah, Bill Gates by, popping up. And uh, we got to, what's that? By the way, um, this is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, formerly called the Bill and Melinda Gates Institute of Population Control. Woo! That's yes. a little known fact. Yeah, I should pull the, find the clip for that. But uh, it's. Yeah, we got to <laughs> find that. Yes, indeed. Yeah. 
And uh, yeah, I have here also some audio from a Canadian documentary that aired in 2010 titled Outbreak, Anatomy of a Plague. And you'll hear the voice of Teresa Tam, who is now the Chief Public Health Officer of Canada and the head of the Public Health Agency of Canada. Listen to this. I think the public has to know this is one of the worst case scenarios in terms of an infectious disease outbreak in that their cooperation is sought. If there are people who are non-compliant, there are definitely uh, laws and, and public health um, powers that can quarantine people in mandatory settings. Mandatory? It's potential you could track people, put bracelets on their uh, arms, have police and other setups to ensure quarantine is undertaken. It is better to be preemptive and precautionary and take the heat of people thinking you might be overreactionary, get ahead of the curve, um, and then think about whether you've overreacted later. But it's such a serious situation that I think decisive early action is the key. Police checkpoints are set up on all the bridges, and everyone leaving the city is required to show proof of vaccination. Those who refuse to cooperate are taken away to temporary detention centers. Ooh, I like the music. That's nuts. When did you say this again? This was in 2010. So like 10 years ago. And here she is already planning a major lockdown with tracking systems and the like and detentions and so on. And uh, somehow she becomes the Trudeau government chief public health officer. Yeah, it's like they picked these people on purpose. Yeah, exactly. And it seems like an event pops off in China and the elites signal to each other, it's go time. They roll out the totalitarian response and here we are. Or maybe they just want to do what's best for us, dumb sheep. There's that possibility. Yeah, certainly, right? What's funny is that she seemed to forget what she had said back in 2010 because she was the one dragging her feet about actually banning the flights from China. Uh, <laughs> Which is so odd, right? Yeah. Because, oh, we didn't want to discriminate against anybody, so we're going to leave the borders open. It's, it, it's so weird. It's almost like they wanted it to come into the country. Make sure we get enough COVID. So that then they can engage in a full lockdown. Yeah. yeah. No, it's so, it's just weird, right? Weird. Uh, totally, totally weird. This is the Not Conform Show. Make sure you tell everyone you know. All right. Well, let's talk about financial control. And Dan, mm -hmm. one of the targets or goals in utilizing the shock doctrine is increasing the financial control that banks and governments have over citizens. And uh, the first element I want to talk about is the war on cash. Yeah. Now, this is something that Jim Rickards writes about. He writes about it in his book and he, he writes about it in articles from time to time. And this article I'm going to quote from is from the Daily Reckoning, just uh just a little while ago, it's called The War in Cash Kicking into Overdrive. And he writes, This crisis is even larger and scarier than the 2008 financial crisis, which gives elites even more opportunity to ram their agendas through without serious opposition. They don't intend to let it go to waste. And sure enough, later he writes, uh, government agents and tech vendors are now claiming that 
cached is dangerous, Woo. quote unquote, because it could contain traces of the coronavirus. Yeah. And um, I mean, theoretically, that's true. Right. But but uh, as I've been uh, I read the book a couple years ago and um, I could say almost on a monthly basis, I see articles popping up across the globe where the war on cash is advancing. Either cash is being vilified or in many places across the globe, cash is being um uh, they're trying to turn it turn into a digital economy right now mm -hmm. in Canada we have we are already very highly cashless society um, the vast majority of people have means of paying that aren't cash related in our contact contactless payment systems like Apple pay and tap to pay have been around for quite a while so we're already there but but now I go to the grocery store and it says you know there's a big sign for reasons of hygiene if possible please pay with debit or credit card yeah and and uh, people want e-transfers. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I, I, for the first time, I started depositing checks. We were using my iPhone yeah. because uh, it was more go. convenient, right? Yeah. So there, and of course, once the cash is gone, then it becomes easy to turn you off if they ever decide to want to do that. We'll talk about that later. Yeah. So warring cash is one thing. And then the other thing that, uh, if you remember the quote from Rickards, is the one world currency. Yeah. And, and this is another thing that Rickard warns about. And uh, I came across an interesting article in Investopedia, and here's the title. IMF chief suggests IMF coin cryptocurrency as possibility. Okay, so I'll read the paragraph because it sets it up, and then the, the nugget is at the end. Yeah. So, quote, um, but the development of the IMF coin will take some convincing, according to the Wall Street Journal article. Certain IMF members, such as China, may favor the proposal because it would diminish the U.S. dollar's role as a reserve currency. However, the proponents of, of the move might face resistance from the United States itself, which may be hesitant to give up its currency privileges. That status enables the United States to achieve several economic ends, from running a current account deficit to enabling low interest rates. Now, here's the, here's the kicker. For her part, Christ, uh, Lagarde, that's Christine Lagarde, the head, uh, said that the, the agency needs a, quote, geopolitical situation that is propitious, end quote, to make the IMF coin a reserve currency. There it is. <laughs> right? Yep. So geopolitical situation that is propitious. Well, you know that, you know what that's code for, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's code for crisis time. This would be a terrible crisis to waste, as the old <laughs> saying goes. That's right. There you right. go. Exactly. And, and, and this is, that's what they're waiting for. Yeah. Uh, they need a plaza. They need to create plausibility to pull this off. And uh, they're just looking and waiting for the opportunity to do it. Now, Dave, uh, given that part of the ratchet is to grab more financial control, we uh, probably shouldn't be surprised that during COVID, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. Uh, and I have several mm -hmm. articles here. Uh, Mitchell Ferenstein, author of Planet Ponzi, How the World Got Into This Mess, What Happens Next, and How to Protect Yourself. He wrote an article in RT titled, Plebs Pay 37% on Credit Card Debt as Elites Enjoy a COVID Payday. And he goes into detail how the money's flowing <laughs> to the elites, but meanwhile, everybody's stuck with all this credit card debt. Us plebs are stuck with this credit card debt, right? Yeah. Here's another article from Forbes, and I'm going to string a, a bunch of quotes together here. Quote, According to the Institute for Policy Studies, billionaire wealth has boomed, while over 26 million people have filed for unemployment since mid-March. From the start of mm -hmm. March to now, the group of billionaires' total wealth has increased by $308 billion. Woo! That's insane. It goes on. 
As of April 15th, Amazon founder and CEO Jeff Bezos has already increased wealth, soared an additional $25 billion during the pandemic. Bezos, Bill Gates, and Warren Buffett have as much money as the bottom half of all American households. This is juxtaposed with roughly 78% of all people in the United States living paycheck to paycheck, 20% with no or negative net worth, and lack three months' worth of emergency funds, end quote. So yeah, the rich are rich and they're getting richer from COVID and uh, the poor are getting poorer from this pandemic situation. And I have another Forbes article here titled, These Healthcare Billionaires Have Gotten Richer Over the Coronavirus Pandemic. And it goes on to detail all these healthcare and, and biotech billionaires that are raking in the dough. So the so-called pandemic is a money-making opportunity for the rich. Yeah, absolutely. They get to buy stuff up at cheap and yeah, all kinds of opportunities. And one of the opportunities I think that that uh, they're going to try to ram through because it's part of this agenda is to get people used to the idea of universal basic income. Yes, and and essentially this is this is a concept that would enslave the uh, the low income world population certain percentage of the world population would become enslaved and locked in at a low income level if this actually goes through. Right. Yeah. And that's been part of their, their goal all along. And so we're seeing even, even actually this morning, there was articles and here's a McLean's article. Will this pandemic's legacy be a universal basic income? Yeah. And here's a quote. The great depression of the 1930s gave us the bank of Canada employment insurance. That's EI and federal equalization payments. The Great Recession of 2008 produced a revolution in monetary policy and a legacy of concern about household debt. Will the Great Lockdown of 2020 bequeath us guaranteed universal income? Among the many unprecedented aspects of the global coronavirus pandemic is the sudden appearance of a widely available handout from Ottawa. The Canada Emergency Response Benefit, the uh, CERB, provides 500 per week to anyone who's out of work because of the virus or the economic shutdown it precipitated. And while the CERB originally uh, excluded students, gig workers, and many others, subsequent refinements now mean nearly everyone who finds themselves in need can get some federal cash. Nearly everyone. Wow. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's widely available and... Uh, you know, there's an another article that just popped up in the Chronicle Herald titled, um, this is from Jim Guy as a columnist, is now the time for a universal basic income in Canada, right? So they've been messaging about this for quite a while. And it's it's very interesting because I just came back from my Cairo and, and you know, we had a conversation and, and there are people, he knows people that have gotten used to this and don't really want to go back to work. Yeah, I can imagine. You know? Um, <laughs> You know, and and here's a clip from AOC. That's Alexandria Occasional Cortex, right? And this goes back about a month, <laughs> right? But but uh, she pretty much says the same thing. Listen, this is crazy. The I think when we talk about this idea of reopening society, you know, only in America does the president, when the president tweets about liberation, does he mean go back to work? When we, you know, have this discussion about going going back or reopening. I think a lot of people should just say, no, we're not going back to that. We're not going back to working 70 hour weeks just so that we could put food on the table and not even feel any sort of semblance of security in our lives. 
Yeah, we should just stay home and let the ro robots do the work, you know? Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> well, speaking of robots doing the work and people staying at home, uh, I have Elon Musk here. He's a Tesla and SpaceX CEO. He sees universal basic income as inevitable. And I have a clip here where he's talking at the World Government Summit. That's what it says in the back of all places, right? It's like yeah. the global World Government Summit. And uh, this is pre-pandemic, okay? So this is uh, uh, before all this COVID stuff. But listen to this. What to do about mass unemployment? This is going to be a massive social challenge. And I think ultimately we will have to have some kind of universal basic income. I don't think we're going to have a choice. Right. So he sees it as an inevitability. Um, and he goes on to say, you know, that's not necessarily what he wants, but he says it's going to happen, you know, but does he not want it? Who knows? Yeah. The messaging on this has been, has been, they've been drumming this drum for quite a while. And in the last year, even pre pandemic, they, the, the drum has been, drumbeat has been increasing on this idea. Yeah. Dave, uh, in your McLean's quote there, I just want to go back for a second. You mentioned that um, mm -hmm. the Great Depression of the 1930s gave us the Bank of Canada. And at some point, we're going to have to circle back to this uh, in an entire episode and, and talk about these central banks. Because the formation of central yeah. banks, which are, I, maybe some people don't know, but they're not actually government run. There are government appointees sitting on boards, but uh, they're not government entities. We don't vote anybody into these central banks. And uh, they're highly connected to uh, the private banking system. And they're part of the, the ratchet. They're early parts of the ratchet that are bringing mm -hmm. us closer and closer to uh, the end goal that Rickards talked about earlier. Yeah, the road to serfdom. That's the thing. That's a, <laughs> the road to serfdom. Hey, show title, Road to Serfdom. <laughs> but that's actually a book title. And we uh, should. Uh, it'll be one of the books must reads for the episode that we do on that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, one way that the elite wield their financial control is through government by using what we can call the selective rescue technique. And we're coining that term here. You've heard it here on the Not Conform show, the selective rescue technique. Okay, what is this? Well, the basic technique involves broadly making everyone suffer financially and then selectively rescuing those individuals or entities that are consistent with the elite's goals. It's all about optics because this way the elites don't come across as selectively hurting someone, like taking away from something. They're taking away something from everyone just very indiscriminately, but then they rescue. And the idea is they have limited resources. So, oops, they can only rescue certain things. And, oh, guess what? They're going to rescue the things that are consistent with their goals and their worldviews, the things that they deem of value. Yeah, so the basic idea is that the elites put everyone in financial trouble by a global shutdown, let's just say, right? Yeah. And then they selectively financially rescue those organizations that are consistent with their worldview. Yes, precisely. Okay, example. In Canada, the Liberal government has created the Canada Emergency Business Account, the CBA. And you can go and look this up online. Mm -hmm. And this provides interest-free loans to small businesses and, critically, not-for-profits, okay, to help those uh, entities with losses due to COVID-19, okay? So, this mm -hmm. might be very enticing to people, especially Christian churches, because they're non-for-profits, and uh, they, they might find this enticing because they may have lost some offerings due to this COVID lockdown. People, you know, the churches aren't running. People aren't going to church. Maybe they're not giving as much money. Okay. 
But there's yeah, and the benefit of the loan is that if you repay it within a year, yeah, uh, if you repay this loan within a year, then you get ten thousand of it. I think you get uh, it's basically a grant. It's, it's a grant, right? So you can, so, yeah, yeah. So it's not just a loan. If you repay it in time, then it's a then it's actually a ten thousand dollar grant. Okay, a portion of it becomes a grant, yeah. right? So you can borrow forty thousand and keep ten. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you can imagine churches are like, woohoo! This is good. We're going to use that. But but there's a catch. And if you go on the website, it says the following, quote, per the requirements of the program as set out by the government of Canada, the borrower confirms that. And then there's a list of four stipulations. And the fourth one is as follows. And they're talking about the entity that they're going to fund. Quote, it does not promote violence, incite hatred, or discriminate on the basis of sex, gender, sexual orientation, race, ethnicity, religion. Culture, education, age, or mental or physical disability. So uh, it says religion. So you're not allowed to discriminate on the basis of religion. So if you take that money, you can't now say, I disagree with another religion. <laughs> Isn't that Yeah, and, and you have to uh, agree with the government's uh, LGBTQXYZ policy as well. Precisely. Right? This is part of it. It's an, it's an ideological test. Yeah. If you can't. Say yes to the test. You're not going to get the money. Yeah. So they're saying, we'll only give you money if you fully agree with our worldview, or at least if you enact mm -hmm. or behave as though you agree with our worldview, which by the way, is an important behavioral change technique because you can change people's attitudes and beliefs by having them engage in certain actions. Yeah. And so, as you said before, the government is being selective with those who they rescue and that's the selective rescue technique in action this is a perfect example of it yeah that's precisely it the selective rescue technique and i have another example here that has to do with private schools in our province of ontario and for those uh, that don't know in ontario we have private schools that are not publicly funded private schools do receive public subsidy in many other provinces in canada but not in ontario where they operate essentially as private businesses. Well, it turns out that these Ontario private schools are not allowed to receive the federal government's COVID-related wage subsidies for businesses. Mm. So they neither get no, public... that's low. Yeah. So they neither get public funds nor COVID relief funds. And I guess the question is, is that an oversight? Well, if it is, it's a big one, right? Because... Uh, you know, there's basically, they're going to be crushing these private schools. And it could be another example, if it's not an oversight, of the selective financial rescue technique, uh, because the current rules have the effect mm -hmm. of overburdening the private school system and pushing people over to the government-controlled public school system. Yep. Yeah. I wouldn't doubt that that's not, it's, it's, it'll be billed as an oversight if enough people complain about it, but otherwise it'll just, it'll uh, just roll. Yeah, it'll just roll and too bad, so sad. That's right. Now, Dave, I think minimally what the COVID lockdown is going to achieve is to in-debt small businesses. So this is another sort of financial technique here. Uh, in Britain, for instance, there are these new bounce-back loans that have been introduced after they introduced the coronavirus business interruption loans. And apparently the buyback loans are 100% government-backed, but they have a 25 percent interest rate so the banks can give these loans out without worrying 
that they will break leverage rules and basically they don't have to worry at all. They're like worry-free loans for the banks. Meanwhile, the interest rate's like 2.5%. So people are like, oh, we're in lockdown. We can't run our business. We have to take a loan, but there's interest. So these uh, businesses are going to you know, go into debt and then have to pay interest on that debt. So interesting. Yeah. So the government guarantees it and the bankers make the money, right? <laughs> that, that's exactly it. See, the bankers are making right. away with the moolah. And so again, kind of a selective rescue, yeah. right? Uh, because the bankers yeah. are, are being rescued, but the small businesses, they are get rescued, but at a price, 2.5%, in fact, precisely. <laughs> <laughs> so Dan, I saw you had some clips uh, of the selective rescue technique from... Uh, the United Nations address there. Yes. Why don't we talk about that for a bit? Yeah, I think this is a much more profound example of the selective rescue technique than just a few percentage points of interest rate for small businesses. I have a clip here from United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres as he delivers his address at the 11th Petersburg Climate Dialogue. And uh, he is talking about how to, quote, shape the post-COVID economic recovery. I am proposing six climate-related actions to shape the recovery. First, as we spend trillions to recover from COVID-19, we must deliver new jobs and businesses through a clean, green and just transition. Investments must accelerate the decarbonization of all aspects of our economy. Second, where taxpayers' money is needed to rescue businesses, it must be creating green jobs and sustainable and inclusive growth. It must not be bailing out outdated, polluting, carbon-intensive industries. So the plan is that uh, post-COVID, if we're going to invest in things, we're not going to bail out the big bad oil fields, but we will put money towards green energy. And uh, here in yeah, Canada, and, and, yep, yeah. Well, I was going to say that the the, uh, the giveaway is shaping the post how do you say shaping the post pandemic economy or the recovery shaping the recovery shaping the post covid right? economy economic recovery yeah and so the word shaping is the big tell there right <laughs> it is yeah this is all about this is all about economic wealth transfer this is all about um creating a, a social engineering that they couldn't do before yeah. until the crisis came shaping is is just another word for ratcheting yeah yeah and uh, here in Canada, and uh, I'm quoting from the National Post now, quote, Elizabeth May, the Green Party's parliamentary leader, stated that oil is dead and argued that the pandemic in a very real way, as horrific as this is at many, many levels, gives us an opportunity to stop and think about how we get this economy back on its feet. And uh, so, again, here you have the opportunity, right? Can't let a crisis go to waste. Here's a clip of May defending her statement. I'll mention one other report, which I hope you've looked at, which is the report that came out of Oxford University this week by Nobel Prize winning economist Joseph Stiglitz and former Chancellor of the Exchequer from the UK, Sir Nicholas Stern, a very prominent economist. And they're both saying it would be a mistake to put money after the pandemic to stimulate the economy in oil and gas, the place to put money post-COVID-19 to stimulate the economy is where it can get some traction. Yeah, so it's another example of Rickard's ratchet, or we could say Rickard's shaper. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and the pandemic-related selective defunding of Canada's oil industry. Um, they see the pandemic as an opportunity because governments have the ability to selectively fund and therefore promote 
and give an advantage to certain industries and to defund other industries. And this is another example of our selective rescue technique. This is the Nutconform Show. Make sure you tell everyone you know. All right, Dan. So since we kind of wandered into this uh, climate change business, um, let's talk about that. I've got a little bit of material on that. And it's, it's again, it it's illustrates the point we're trying to make because the, the climate change alarmists, of course, want to get in on the action, right? Yeah. And the messaging is it's, it's you know, all over the planet. Uh, uh, and we're seeing articles bring, make this claim that the global lockdowns and the drastic reduction in human activity is allowing the earth to heal itself. Woo! Yay, right? the healing and power so of here's COVID. here's a headline from... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe that's the show title. Uh, here's a headline from the... <laughs> all right, all right. We gotta, we gotta collect ourselves here. Right. So here's the headline from the Winnipeg Free Press. Okay, this is a world... As world slows, Mother Nature takes a breath. <sighs> Another headline. This is from news.com.au. Sea turtles return to beaches around the world amid coronavirus pandemic. Quote, while the COVID-19 pandemic has been a horrific time for humans, it has been a time of relief for nature. And the latest benefit of the crisis are the world's sea turtles. The marine creatures which find nesting in sandy beaches difficult due to crowds and pollution are thriving while humans are cooped up indoors. Yeah. <laughs> and then a bit later. It isn't just sea turtles that have benefited from the coronavirus pandemic, keeping humans confined. Smog has cleared up in New Delhi and the Himalayas have been been visible. Canals have cleared up in Venice and animals have roamed more freely. So Mother Nature takes a breath. (laughs) 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 And, you know, there's a there's a. A Guardian article, Nature's Taking Back Venice, Wildlife Returns to Tourist-Free City. Right, mm-hmm. and, and that's the headline. But of course, if you read further down, further enough, they, they'll quote, a, um, uh, I think it was a marine biologist. And he basically says, yeah, the marine life was always there, but you just couldn't see it because the sediment hasn't been stirred up by the boats. And so now we can kind of see this stuff, right? But that doesn't stop the, the Guardian from spinning this as a climate change story. Yeah, they walk it right? back, but they and, walk it and back wa- at the end of the article, right? So the, the headline is like, woo, yeah, climate you- <laughs> change and, and people are locked up. So therefore the climate is healing and and meanwhile, in the back of the article at the bottom, they walk that completely back. Yeah, I got a perfect example of that, actually, with the next article I have here. Um, you know, there was a meme at one point around dolphins swimming in the Venice canals and swans returning. And so this is a global news story. I found it on MSN.com. Dolphins return to Italy's coast amid coronavirus lockdown. Nature just hit the reset button. <laughs> reset. <laughs> and so they're quoting a bunch of Twitter. The article is basically a bunch of Twitter quotes, right? Yeah. And, and it says the Twitter user at, uh, I don't know, Ikavari or something like that, uh, shared photos of the stunning sight writing, the firsts are visible, the swans have returned. Yeah. Now, if you keep reading, you'll get to the inconvenient fact that another buddy there t- tweets back and he says, yeah, you actually posted a photograph of my hometown in Borano. The swans live in a lagoon and have actually been there for over 20 years. I've never actually left. Oh, man. Yeah, I see again. So, so <laughs> but the headlines, right? The headlines. Yeah. Nature just hit the reset button. And so this is the messaging, right? Nature is thriving. Yeah. And look, yeah, we could let the environmentalists indulge a little bit in their fantasy. I mean, it's, it's, things are depressing right now. After all, why not just focus on some good news amongst, amidst all the bad news? Mm-hmm. 
But the problem is that these environmentalists also realize that a good crisis should not be allowed to go to waste. There it is again. Right? And so what we're seeing, yeah, exactly. And so what we're seeing is that they're trying to piggyback off this coronavirus, off the, off the lockdown measures. And I found an article on LifeSite News that just on a, like catches them in the act completely, mm -hmm. right? So this is, uh, the, the title is, and it'll be in the show notes, Climate activists colon government needs to keep citizens in emergency mode to deal with climate change. And, and here are a few excerpts. So just from April 2nd, um, climate activists are praising the national lockdowns and, and declarations of national emergencies around the world in response to the coronavirus pandemic as a model for response to climate change. Oh, my. Yeah. And so listen, we've been quote, we've been trying for years to get people out of normal mode into emergency mode, said Margaret Klein uh, Salomon, leader of the climate change mobilization group. So alarm bears will be going off, right? Mm -hmm. This is the, this is the crisis, mm -hmm. right? The, the one that should never go to waste. Mm -hmm. And then the next quote, she says, what is possible politically is fundamentally different when lots of people get into emergency mode. When they fundamentally accept that there's danger and that if we want to be safe, we need to do everything we can. Okay, that's another key one. If we want to be safe, we need to do everything we can. Yep. Uh, uh, and she says, it's been interesting to see that theory validated by the response to the coronavirus, she said. Yeah, so it's fear and you fear for your safety and that will motivate you to basically do anything, including to give do, up all your rights and freedoms and, and uh, your lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I've got some great quotes, uh, Snowden quotes to talk about in a minute to illustrate that. But she continues, now the challenge is to keep emergency mode activated about climate, right? Mm -hmm. So they don't want us to like go back to normal. They want to keep the, keep the emergency mode activated where she says the dangers are orders of magnitude greater. And we can't think we're going to go back to normal because things weren't normal. And that's their claim, right? Yeah. And of course, the, the article then cites Greta Thunberg there, that teen, teenage climate activist. Yeah. Um, and she says, uh, Greta says, it also shows one thing that once we're in a crisis, we can act to do something quickly, act fast. Yeah, like Trudeau with his gun grab. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's barely two weeks and the, barely the blood's been cleaned up and he's already in motion, right? And, and as far as Greta's concerned, we all know what Greta wants, right? Here, I got a clip. I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic. I want you to feel the fear Thanks, I feel Greta. every day. And then I want you to act. I want you to act as if you would in a crisis. I want you to act as if the house was on fire. Because it is. So, yeah, she wants us to panic. Panic and act fast. Yeah, that Greta is a real propagandist. And here's what my kids have to say to Greta's incessant fear-mongering propaganda. We will not conform, even in the darkest propaganda storm. We will not conform, even in the darkest propaganda storm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, man. Oh, that's great. Another another not confirmed jingle. Yeah, you heard that's it here right. first. <laughs> yeah, and we haven't played this one for a while. Tell everyone about the not conformed show. Singing this jingle wherever you go. How can they listen if they do not know where to 
Oh, nice. I forgot about that one. Great. Yeah, that was a good one, too. We haven't played that one for a while. Well, one sphere in which uh, we've already seen some COVID-related ratcheting is that of technocracy. And uh, for our young listeners, mm-hmm. the term technocracy means, and I'm quoting from Merriam-Webster here, quote, management of society by technical experts. And of course, the experts are scientists. So it's about scientists running the world, which I'm very excited about because I'm a scientist. And so I, I'm, I'm waiting to be crowned. Um, as a ruler of the world. Well, guys like Mike Bloomberg, too, call themselves technocrats, right? The, yeah. Um, it could be scientists. It could be the big data guys the like big data uh, guys Google for sure. and uh, Facebook and stuff. Yeah, and yeah. guys who make technology, right? So uh, technology mm-hmm. developers, yeah. Well, a good example of COVID-related technocracy is in a TED Talk in which the head of TED, Chris Anderson, interviews Bill Gates about the pandemic. Listen to this. Three years from now, we'll look back and say, you know, that was awful. Uh, there's a lot of heroes, but we've learned the lesson. And, and the world as a whole, uh, with its great science and desire to help each other, was able to try and minimize what happened there and, and, and you know, avoid it happening again. That's certainly the optimistic scenario that I'm craving for myself, that, that the world kind of realizes one, that, that there are certain things that you just have to unite on. Two, that science really matters. And, and that, sci- that it's a miracle that science can understand this bug, you know, make a vaccine, sequence it, make therapeutics, understand how to model it. It's kind of miraculous to me. So, so will we learn now to, that, to pay attention to scientists? Because if we do, I, I, I'm sure that you feel this as well, there's an amazing analog, right, with climate. It's just a different time scale that the scientists are out there saying, there's this huge enemy coming. If we do nothing, it's going to take millions of lives. It's going to wreck our planet. For God's sake, at politicians, do something. And the politicians are going, oh, no, we need a little more GDP. We need to win an election. And they're not acting. May, I mean, is there, do you see a scenario where this shocks politicians to actually change their thinking and their prioritization of science overall? Or is that, that asking too much? Yeah, so it shocks the politician into prioritizing science overall and listening to the scientists, right? And they go on talking about uh, technocracy um, and, you know, how science is going to solve this crisis, and then we should elevate science. So they both see the COVID crisis as an opportunity, for one thing, to unite the world, and then to increase the influence of scientists and the technocrats. And it's fascinating to listen to the TED Talk because Anderson seems to look to Gates as some sort of god who can get us through this crisis and save the world. And increasingly, you know, Gates is on the news, and I You see all these people kind of hanging on every word. Bill, what are you going to do? How are you going to save us with your vaccine? Yeah, that's a a big problem. Yeah, and now the technocrats, if they are to do their job well, will want more data. And that's critical. It means more surveillance of the population, which is exactly what we're seeing during this pandemic. There seems to be a substantial increase in surveillance and in people's willingness to submit to surveillance programs and initiatives. And all this gives a lot of data over to the technocrats that they mull over. And then based on their decisions about that data, they shape our world. Yeah. And Dan, it's very similar what we're seeing now to what happened after 9-11. Because after 9-11, we saw this massive increase for surveillance and and critically as you said people's acceptance of surveillance yeah. 
and the loss of privacy and the loss of restriction and the increase of restrictions in society that never really went away. Yeah. Right. And I have a series of clips from an interview with Edward Snowden, where he brings up this, this connection or the interviewer does, and he fleshes it out between 9-11 and, and the, the situation, the COVID situation now, and the dangers of this increased surveillance that you uh, just mentioned. Now, those of you who don't know who Edward Snowden is, there's a, um, well, here's a brief bio from edwardsnowden.com, and uh, you can follow it up if you want to know more. But Edward Snowden is a 31-year-old U.S. citizen, former intelligence community officer and whistleblower. The documents he revealed provided a vital public window into the NSA and its international intelligence partners' secret mass surveillance programs and capabilities. These revelations generated unprecedented attention around the world on privacy intrusions, intrusions and digital security, leading to a global debate on the issue. And and this is one of the I remember when uh, the Snowden revelations first came out, and this is when I really started to pay attention to some of this stuff. Uh, back then. And if you want to know more, you can check out the excellent documentary Citizen Four or or Snowden's memoirs that have just been in September, just this past September, were were published uh, called Permanent Record. And there was even a, uh, a 2016 biographical thriller di- directed by Oliver Stone titled Snowden. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I've seen that one. You can check that stuff out. And, and yeah, and even the, 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 the Oliver Stone one is it was quite accurate. Mm-hmm quite accurate. It, it had to follow the movie arc and stuff. And, and so things were quite in order, I'm sure, but, but uh, the, the thrust of it was quite good. And, and so once again, Snowden's expertise is in surveillance and governmental expansion of secret surveillance programs um, in response to a crisis. Mm-hmm. And the clips I'm going to play for you are from a March 23rd interview with uh, the uh, CPH Colin Docks. It's at the Copenhagen International Documentary Film Festival, and he was asked to comment on some movie. And it was an interview, an, an online interview, because of course he's hiding out in Russia because the U.S. government is not happy with them for leaking all this information yeah. about their secret spying technologies on on their own citizens, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and and he's asked in this interview, he's asked about the similarity of this crisis with 9/11, and here's the connection that he makes. And it was kind of tricky to get good clips because he tends to have these long sprawling answers, uh, which is great, but hard to clip. And then there's a bunch of technical stuff in there that people might not be interested in. So I cut that out, but nevertheless, and the interviewer interrupts him too, which is annoying, but I managed to get a a few good clips that are very relevant to our conversation today. So here's the first one. He asked me before uh, how we got into this, you know, is this like uh, 9-11 and uh, sort of what, what's the, the similarity there? And it's, uh, of course, very different in the context of it's not a terrorist attack. Um, this is uh, a force of nature. Um, but what is similar is that these are both crises uh, that have produced panic. So these are both crises that have produced panic. And according to the shock doctrine, panic is the time for rapid action. And as I said, after 9-11, this led to a huge expansion of governmental powers, or at least um, the ones we eventually found out about, yeah. uh, and an abuse of those powers that led to Snowden to become a whistleblower and had to eventually go on the run and is still now for many years has been hiding out in Russia. And here's how he describes this all, um, kind of how the, it goes from that crisis to the rapid action and to the, to the program. So here's what he says. Uh, and this is the problem. Um, Whenever there is a crisis, 
rationality uh, exits the room, and you have uh, policy that is being driven by. Right. Uh, But you have policy that is being driven um, by a panic in the pursuit of benefits that at the time are theoretical. So notice uh, public policy driven by panic in pursuit of benefits that at the time are theoretical. Yeah. And they they justify this based on some theory. Yeah. And that's what technocrats tend to do. They create models And that's what we've seen with COVID-19, right? You have this model, Mm -hmm. 500,000 people are going to die in the UK unless you do X. And X is like, shut the whole thing down unless you do what I say, right? But those are all theoretical. And typically, they don't consider all the costs of their interventions. Yeah, no, it's a huge problem. Or they do, but the point is the model gets them to where they want to be, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, So here's one more clip from Snowden that... um, that uh, talks about the problem with allowing the technocrats to proceed in this way, in the way, whatever they want to do. What people are, are missing, um, that I think people who are looking at this from a longer span are catching, is uh, the coronavirus is a serious problem, um, but it is a transient problem. Uh, we will eventually have a vaccine, uh, or even if we don't, we will eventually have herd immunity. Uh, In two years, uh, this problem will be gone. Uh, But the consequences of the decision that we make now uh, are permanent. And I think this is uh, crucial to bear in mind. From the perspective of a free society, um, a virus is harmful. But the destruction of rights is fatal. This is a permanent thing that we don't get back. When we lose a right that we fought a revolution for, that there was a movement founded for, that that took a hundred years of effort to win, uh, and then we lose it in a moment of panic, this is the connection with 9-11. We had the birth of the Patriot Act. We had the birth of mass surveillance. We had the United States directly engaged in running... It's interesting because that's where the sound all of a sudden cuts off Uh-oh. in the interview. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly, because, it, it, I mean, his concern, his personal concern was all about the fact that uh, that they were surveilling their own citizens without any kind of warrants or whatever. And when it picks up, the sound picks up, he, he talks about how the United States just uh, justified uh, engaging in torture because allegedly the threat was so great that this was the only way they could counter it. Right. And so you had Guantanamo Bay and all those kind of programs. And, and but just ba- back to his comment on rights, right? He says the destruction of rights is permanent. You might, it, gener- it takes generations and, and of fighting to get them and then they can be lost in just in the blink of an eye. And, and he says that the virus is harmful, but the destruction of rights is fatal. Yeah. Right, we could lose them in a moment of panic, and if you don't know about the five eyes and the nine eyes and the fourteen eyes <laughs> and all these ag- international agreements and surveillance, then you really should look it up. I'll try to put something in the show notes on this because it tells you how what happened after nine eleven in terms of the loss of our privacies and uh, the the amount of surveillance going on globally. Dave, these are fantastic clips, and so I'll give you the awesome clip jingle for all of these. All right, thanks. Yeah, that's great. Now, Dan, I see from some of your clips in your list there that you have some concrete examples of the kind of tracking that we we're just talking about um, that are going to impinge on our personal liberties out of uh, coming out of this 
COVID situation. Yeah. Well, obviously, there has been a massive increase in biotracking to assess who has or who has had the virus. And Bill Gates is clearly a leader in this regard. He's very enthusiastic about tracking people who have recovered from COVID or who will have received the vaccine once their vaccine is available. And I have a clip here from an interview of Bill Gates on the TED platform. And I, I already played a clip from this before. He's being interviewed by the head of TED, the TED head, Chris Anderson. Listen to this. <laughs> Eventually, what we'll have to have is certificates of who's a recovered person, who's a vaccinated person, because you don't want people moving around the world where you'll have some countries that won't have it under control. Sadly, you don't want to completely block off the ability for those you know, people to go there and come back and move around. So he's already getting ready to control the movement of the population. And uh, on March 18th, 2020, mm -hmm. so this is just, a, uh, a, I guess, a month ago, Bill Gates uh, participated in a Reddit Ask Me Anything, a transcript of which uh, he posted on Gates Notes. And by the way, there's a picture of himself mm -hmm. holding a card that says working from home, at least it did at the time. Uh, I, I got this. And it's, I was thinking, yeah, Bill, working from your massive mansion on your sprawling property, <laughs> you know, well, uh, yeah, of, they just bought a new one, uh, some giant seaside thing or something. Well, there you like go. That. Right. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, here's an interesting yeah. question and answer from the ask me anything post question quote, what changes are we going to have to make to how businesses operate to maintain our economy while providing social distancing End quote. So here's his answer quote. The question of which businesses should keep going is tricky. Certainly food supply and the health system. We still need water, electricity, and the internet. Supply chains for critical things need to be maintained. That's just, as an aside, is very interesting. He's already planning out what's going to be allowed, what's not going to be allowed. Oh, this is great. He goes on. Yep. Countries are still figuring out what to keep running. Eventually, we will have some digital certificates to show who has recovered or been right. tested recently or when we have a vaccine, who has received it. So he wants digital certificates. Wow. Yeah. Tracking. He wants to track us. And coincidentally, the Scientific American published an article on December 18th, 2019, and it was titled, Invisible Ink Could Reveal Whether Kids Have Been Vaccinated. <laughs> and the byline reads... Yeah. The technology embeds immunization records into a child's skin. So this technology was developed by a group from MIT and published in the journal Science Translational Medicine. And here's a quote from the Scientific American article, quote, the work was funded by Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation oh, yeah. and came about because of a direct request from Microsoft founder and philanthropist Bill Gates himself who has been supporting efforts to wipe out diseases such as polio and measles across the world. Yeah. End quote. So Bill Gates is directly involved in the creation of this subcutaneous vaccine that you inject into children. And Dave, I recently heard, heard an item or saw a news item about Netanyahu in Israel there, and he wants to yes. track the children. Track them. Yeah, that's the key. That's the key. And, and then what they don't tell you, too, is that Bill Gates and his buddies there um, at the World Health Organization, there, there's a lot of money that are, is tied up in the patents to do this kind of stuff, right? And so 
um, that the insidious thing is that Bill Gates yeah. now is going to transform his fortune into a whole new stratosphere if this actually goes through. So yeah, and I've seen interviews with Bill Gates where he's where he's all excited about how much more funding is going to flow into the research on vaccines yeah. and uh, implementation of these various tracking programs. I mean, I think he's just counting dollars at this point, or counting the the control, right? Counting the control, yeah. Digital tracking, we can say, is coming quickly, and imagine it could be used to restrict your movement if you don't comply with various vaccination protocols. And the like, all this goes under various terms like health passports or immunity passports. Uh, and there's various other names, but the basic idea is to track you. Yeah. And Dan, I've got another Snowden clip from that interview that speaks to this very thing in the the data uh, once it's being collected, that it, it makes the comment that it doesn't really go away. Listen to this. If we permit governments to uh, say, look, we can track every cell phone of every person everywhere all the time. We can make inferences on the basis of this data set, and then we can take executive actions uh, as a result of this information. Um, what keeps them from going, well, we're worried about health. We're worried about public health. We're worried about protecting people. The primary symptom of the coronavirus is a fever, right? This develops before the cough and persists uh, throughout the course of the virus. It's your immune system fighting it off. Uh, we're going to send an order to every fitness tracker um, that can get something like pulse or heart rate. Uh, and we're going to start demanding access to this kind of activity. Um, and now we're going to go, well, these people have elevated pulses. Uh, and now, you know, five years later, the coronavirus is gone. This data is still available to them. They start looking for new things. They go, oh, you know, there's a terrorist group out there. Um, they're putting propaganda on the Internet, like we saw from ISIS. This is, this is the hammer looking for a nail kind of thing, right? Right. Uh, exactly. Which we've seen also in the last days with, with Clearview, this, this other company that provides uh, facial recognition for, for law enforcement, that they're like, well, we can use our tool for the coronavirus. Right, right, right. Yeah, and I mean, this is a constant problem, whether we're talking facial recognition. What happens now when we start to put these authorities together and remix them? Yeah, so notice, uh, you know, there's existing tools, the data never goes away, and then these existing tools easily get remixed into a whole new level of surveillance and control of the population. Yeah, they mentioned uh, a company called Clearview, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm not sure if this is the same company under a different name or if these are very different companies, but The Guardian mentioned a facial recognition company in an article they ran on May 4th. Mm -hmm. And the, the article documented how tech firms are working with UK government authorities on these health passports. And I have a quote here, quote, facial biometrics could be used to help provide a digital certificate, sometimes known as an immunity passport, proving which workers have had COVID-19. The UK-based firm Onfido, which specializes in verifying people's identities using facial biometrics, had delivered detailed plans to the government and is involved in a number of conversations about what could be rolled out across the country, it is understood. Its proposals, which have reached pilot stage in other countries, could be executed within months, it says. The firm could use antibody tests, proving whether someone has had the virus, or antigen tests, which show current infections. So this is uh, just like what was said in the Snowden clip mm -hmm. there. What we're seeing is that existing technology, in this case facial biometrics and their infrastructure can be quickly mobilized in the heat of the moment to be used 
to uh, potentially oppressive ends, yep. right? To a new type of tracking. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we have to be very weary when we hear tech developers say that their technology will be used for the good of humanity and that everyone who says otherwise is a silly pessimist or a Luddite or a crazy conspiracy theorist. Because once the technology is in place, emergency conditions can provide just the conditions for the technology to be used against the general population. Mm -hmm. And it can be mobilized rapidly to become an oppressive surveillance technology. Yes. Here is uh, Sharon Kirkey talking about the views of Ross Upshur, who is a University of Toronto bioethicist. Upshur worries about how things like immunity cards have, you know, similar proposals like that have worked in the past. You know, think of apartheid, colonial Africa, Nazi Germany, and how they can end up being used against really already disadvantaged people. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, immunity certificates sound great if you're one of the lucky ones deemed, quote, immune. You're not so lucky if you're the person who still ends up locked inside. Yeah, Dave, notice how this all somehow neatly links to totalitarian and oppressive regimes mm -hmm. that we have seen in the past. I bet the elites will magically all have immunity. Yeah, Dan, no, you're, you're making <laughs> some excellent points there. And I want to go back to what you said before about the, uh, the, uh, this being rapidly mobilized to become an oppressive surveillance technology. I think the way you put it and uh, Snowden says the same mm -hmm. thing. And I, I, I like this next clip I have because he coins this idea of the architecture of, oppression and it it captures well what you just so very nicely summarized as well and let me play that but what happens um when you have built over the course of a generation the architecture of oppression and you live in denmark right uh you go look my government's not that scary i trust them it's fine the only thing i'm afraid of are the swedes coming across the sea right and they haven't done that in a while so it's okay now times are good um but then or the U.S. Biden. There's an election. That's, that's a whole other discussion. And then you get a Donald Trump. And then you think that's... Oh, yeah, there he is. Get, and then it gets worse. Right. And then it gets worse. And you have built a system of turnkey tyranny that is available to the next leader that can, in secret, at any time, be twisted. And you have no civil power remaining to resist it because you cannot coordinate... Yeah, so, uh, you know, Trump and Biden, or sorry, I should say Trump and Snowden are a bit of at odds here. Um, something that Trump should actually pardon Snowden. But the, the point is, is just getting back to his point, uh, not the Trump bashing, but the, the point here about building a system of turnkey tyranny that is available to the next leader that can be in secret be anytime yeah. uh, you just turned on or twisted and you can't, you can't even coordinate because they're tracking you. They, you, they, you can't coordinate any resistance because by now your freedoms are gone. They're taken away. Yeah, Dave, there are several potential show titles there. Architecture of oppression. <laughs> yeah. And turnkey tyranny. Turnkey tyranny. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've been talking about biotracking or digital tracking uh, with regard to people's infection status and so on. But the same considerations apply just to straightforward location tracking. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of articles on this, Dave. I, I've got a whole stack here. I'm just going to very quickly just mention a few. Mm -hmm. CBC article titled Trudeau Leaves Door Open to Using Smartphone Data to Track Canadians' Compliance with Pandemic Rules. And they mention how China, Taiwan, and South Korea have uh, taken intensive measures using smartphone locations and how tech companies are now sharing aggregate smartphone data. Mm -hmm. Then we have The Guardian ran an article 
on April 11th titled Canada looking to prepare surge force using cell phone data to contain COVID-19 and April 28th article from Reuters titled cyber Intel firms pitch governments on spy tools to trace coronavirus. And, yeah. and there's one, they talk about this company Celebrite, uh-huh. uh, an Israeli firm. And, and it says, we do not need the phone passcode to collect the data. <laughs> the salesman wrote to a senior officer in an April 22nd email reviewed by Reuters. So they could, they don't even need your passcode. They could just hack the, the phone and take out your information. Yep. And it goes on and on. Uh, Daily Mail, April 28th, uh, Britain's NHS will be implementing a contact tracing app and the independent has this about contact tracing apps. It has this concern that these NHS contact tracing apps could be used to send malicious alerts. Mm. And, uh, the idea now is, is that, you know, you can hack into these things, then you can make, get someone into quarantine, <laughs> even though they're not, they're not sick, yeah. right? Just yeah. by hacking the yeah. system. I mean, it's a total... Total surveillance, total oppression, total gong show. Yeah, and undoubtedly these are going to be misused. And there's a couple of levels of this, actually, because because uh, I've seen articles, and I'll try to, if I can find them again, I'll link them, where they're already using cell phone data from the cell phone companies to track patterns, to know that, oh, the titles are like, oh, people are getting weary of COVID lockdowns, right? So they're already using the readily available cell phone triangulation from the, the companies to analyze the data, to watch our how people en masse are moving. Then there's another level of provinces and, play, and, and places starting to implement countries, implementing these tracking apps that are supposedly voluntary. And then the third level, unfortunately, is that uh, Google and Apple have teamed up to build the contract tracing into their operating system. So first it's going to start as a voluntary app, then it's going to go in two levels, whereby at some point it's going to be a core feature of the operating system. And this is, (laughs) this is disconcerting because at that point you might not be able to opt out or you, you know, you can check the button, but who knows if it actually does anything. Well, I'm going to tie my cell phone to a donkey (laughs) and uh, I'm just going to tie it to an ass and then smack the ass and the ass will just go wander around. (laughs) (laughs) Google can track whatever they track. (laughs) I can track my ass. <laughs> That's right, and <laughs> there's a there's a press for truth uh, video that came out a while ago where the guy talks about having to do these kinds of things. Um, it's interesting because if you want to congregate and and get around the system, right? I mean, hopefully we never get there, but it's 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 a problem. And and the thing is, most people think about when they're thinking about these things. Most people are opting in. These these apps are, are getting on people's phones, and people are opting in. They're giving up this data and they they think, well, you know, we need this. We need this to to solve the corona problem, right? And so the in that Snowden interview, just getting back to that again, he asks the interviewer asks him uh, this legitimate question. He says, Well, how do you strike the right balance, right? Is, isn't some of this stuff a little bit necessary so that we could actually accomplish this, you know, to to reduce the incidences of of infection? And I, I love Snowden's answer. <laughs> Listen to this. How do you think you strike the right balance then between uh, a sincere and, you know, pressing need to do something about a virus or another natural disaster and and the wish to briefly suspend certain, you know, fundamental liberties in order to, you know, strike a, a, a greater societal good? 
Is that when never is okay. the last time that you remember a brief suspension of civil liberties? Right, and that's precisely Rickard's. Yeah, that's, pre- <laughs> that's precisely Rickard's point with the ratchet approach. You know, air travel after nine eleven, right? Never been the same. Yeah, right? that's right. I mean, think about how much you have to pay for a water bottle these days at the airport. You can't even bring your own water in. It's uh, and there's all yeah. kinds of things we just never get it back. And 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 Snowden makes the point that the restrictions tend to be sticky. So allow me one more one more clip here. Um, and this is the thing. Uh, in the fair time point, that we live in... I like uh, to be the devil's advocate, Ed. <laughs> right. No, I, I understand that. But uh, this is, a, you know, it's, it's a question that everybody should consider. Mm-hmm. Um, when we see emergency measures passed, uh, particularly today, uh, they tend to be sticky. Um, the emergency tends to be expanded. Uh, then the authorities become comfortable uh, with uh, some new power. Uh, they start to like it. Uh, and the original emergency passes. Coronavirus yeah. is gone. Terrorism is no longer a big thing. They find new applications, new uses for this new power they gained. Uh, and they went, well, maybe we don't need to give this up. Maybe we can pass a new law uh, that makes this a permanent authority. And we've seen this happen in country after country. It's not a local uh, domestic issue. Um, this becomes uh, a culture of safety at all costs, right. uh, where they go, look, um, if there's any risk, we have to reduce it down to the, the minimum imaginable level uh, at any possible price. And this is, the, this is fundamentally in conflict, I believe, um, with the concept of a free and open society. Yeah, and note that uh, comment there, culture of safety at all costs. This was the... Uh, going yeah. back up to that climate change article that I had a while back there, I'm just uh, scrolling back up to it here. You know, the the comment was uh, when the when they fundamentally accept right, it's what's politically possible. Uh, possible politically is fundamentally different when lots of people get into an emergency mode. Was the quote when they fundamentally accept that there's a danger and that if we want to be safe, we need to do everything we can. And so this idea of of uh, safety at all cost, uh, this is how. Uh, once we accept that idea, this is how we get entrapped into this this uh, this uh, the accepting these restrictions. Um, and when you get into this, mm-hmm. when you accept the idea that we need to reduce the risk to any minimum imaginable level um, at any possible price, that's when we end up with the problem, right? That's when you can say that uh, the same people that. Uh, uh, you know, three months ago, four months ago, five months ago, we're advocating that we need to be able to euthanize as many elderly as possible and expanding the legislation for us to do that. Now say we have to save them at every single cost, including shutting down the world economy. Um, you know, we got to save, preserve yeah. those who are, you know, maybe just have a couple months to live anyway. Right. So, um, yeah, this is how you get there. And, and Snowden goes on to say, he says, look, in a free and open society, uh, you need both, right? You need, you need to, you need, you need both security and, uh, and privacy. And uh, he makes the comment that we prioritize and we organize society for the defense of the individual and the common collective good. And this is derived from the protection of rights. And if we sacrifice the mm-hmm. rights, we're, we're, we're going to make things worse, not better. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and, and I just wanted to say that he, he also makes the point that we're we're moving into that 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 COVID nineteen eighty four world to borrow another you know other terms that people this is what people are calling it and we're moving there every day that we let panic motivate our decisions <laughs> rather than 
the rational reflection about the consequences of this narrowing of our rights. Yeah, Dave, what I find quite shocking is how various public figures are telling us that they are working so hard on very sophisticated surveillance and control systems for us mm -hmm. to help us get past this lockdown. And people are eating it up. They say, yes, please bring on the full surveillance so we can get back to our lives. Do it faster. Yeah. Give me the microchip and the facial recognition and the bracelet and the smartphone app and a pharmaceutical frontal lobotomy while you're at it. <laughs> yeah. We are begging for a comprehensive surveillance state. We are playing right into the hands of the communist totalitarian technocrats. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. We will not conform even in the darkest propaganda storm. Well, Dave, we're, we're getting kind of long again, and we did want to talk about how the ratchet plays out in the context of churches closing, but let's leave that for a special episode, and maybe we can release one quickly on the heels of this one, uh, just so that you know people don't have to listen to a very long, three-hour-long episode. Um, so why don't we just stop here, and then why don't you just take us out? Yeah, sounds good, Dan. I've got a bunch of clips that will are... Uh, really, I almost saw this part here that we've talked about as a preamble to illustrate the uh, the shock doctrine. And ultimately, you know, what happens is that uh, when this architecture of oppression is is put in place, it always ends up it always ends up being turned on the Christian church. And so I definitely want to talk about that. But let's uh, let's close here and just very quickly where to find us. The the best place to find us on the web is at notconform.show. And uh, that's where you'll find the individual episode pages and the show notes and the subscribe links and all the embedded players and and um, all that stuff. You can just listen online or you can subscribe in your podcast client. And so the best way to spread the word about the show is just point people to notconformed.show. And finally, we'd also like to thank all those who have sent us feedback and to, to links and articles and clips and all that kind of stuff. We greatly appreciate that. And we want to encourage you to keep that coming. And so just email us at info uh, at notconformed.show. So that's info at notconformed.show. All right, Dan, that's it. All right, Dave, we'll talk to you on the next episode. Sounds great. Looking forward to it.